Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different than the rest. Last episode was all about the origins and first mission of Saul of Tarsus, who became St. Paul. As one of the most influential Roman citizens of all time and one of the most discussed theologians in history, he marks an inflection point in both the history of Rome and Christianity making our study of him today absolutely essential to understanding Western civilization. To recap from last episode, we left off after the Jerusalem Council. It was at this council where it was specifically decided that the Gentile converts didn't need to be circumcised. The only Jewish customs they needed to follow were 1. No supporting idolatry by buying meat sacrificed to idols, 2. No fornication, and 3 only eat meat from animals ritually butchered. Of course, they were also forbidden from murdering, idolatry, and incest, but these rules were a given. God had established these for all people in the so-called Noachian precepts established in Genesis 9 and Leviticus 17-18. After the Jerusalem Council, the apostles sent Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch, and they brought along Silas, a.k.a. Silvanus, who was one of the leading brethren of the church in Jerusalem. A few days after returning to Antioch, Peter, the head of the church, comes down to visit. A bit of background, Peter and Paul had met 15 years earlier when Paul first converted. This was a few days before Peter's vision that the gospel was to go to all the Gentiles. From these formative two weeks they spent together, the two of them figured out it was A-OK for Jews to eat meals with Gentiles. Prior to those days and the vision of Peter, The Jewish members of the church had often avoided eating with Gentiles because they couldn't control what was kosher or not, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. Despite the two of them being in agreement on this subject, a strange thing happened when Peter visited Antioch. He refused to eat meals with any of the Gentile converts, snubbing a key demographic of the church. Paul knew that Peter knew better, and for the last 15 years, the two of them had shared many meals with Gentiles. Paul decided to confront Peter about it. Paul writes, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood self-condemned. The other Jews of Antioch joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? This was a shocking turn of events, where you have Paul correcting Peter, the chief apostle, in front of many of the other leaders of the church. But it was necessary since they were at risk of alienating the new Gentile converts and relegating them to second-class citizens or making them comply with Jewish dietary laws that they had just exempted them from. So why did Peter do this? Well, because the Apostle James had sent messengers up to Antioch with Peter. James and his messengers believed in a stricter interpretation of the law, forbidding table fellowship. Wanting to avoid an earful from James's people, Peter decided to just not eat with the Gentiles, not realizing that this would earn him an earful from Paul. We can assume that Peter accepted this counsel graciously and made amends because he ends up encouraging Paul to go on another mission to share the updates from the Jerusalem Council with the congregations up north. Paul told Barnabas the exciting news. Come, let us return and visit the believers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. 
To this, Barnabas replied, and I'm paraphrasing, Great! Let's bring my cousin Mark along. He'd love to go back to Cyprus. Now, at this, Paul seethed. Mark had abandoned them during their last mission, and there was still bad blood between the two of them. And so, Paul decided not to take with them one who had deserted them in Pamphylia and not accompanied them in their work, Luke writes. The disagreement became so sharp that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and set out. And so, Silas and Paul departed from Antioch and continued northwest through Syria and Cilicia. Syria and Cilicia are not, citizen, uh, not cities, rather they are the names of Roman provinces north of Judea. I can't help but wonder why they took this land route instead of the sea route. Perhaps they didn't want to have an awkward moment where they bumped into Mark and Barnabas again? Regardless, as they traveled, perhaps on the very same road to Damascus Paul had walked 15 years earlier, they visit some of the blossoming Christian communities along the way. The first places Paul gets to revisit are Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, which are towards the south-central part of the Anatolian Peninsula. These were his last stops on his first journey. Luke writes, As they went from town to town, they delivered to them the, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. You can see that this loosening of the Mosaic restrictions was a huge boon to the church in these areas, and many more were baptized. Ironically, though, in Lystra, Paul actually does circumcise someone. Now, you may be saying to yourself, what? After he just railed on Peter for hypocritically following expired Jewish customs, now he's performing the ultimate expired Jewish custom on a new convert at that? Well, you see, this convert was a bit of a special case. His name was Timothy. His mother and grandmother were stalwart Christian converts from Judaism, and he too wanted to join the faith. He was a young man and was eager to join Paul on his missionary journeys. He would one day become a great scribe, a church leader, and a bishop. Fuller.edu explains why Paul urged Timothy to be circumcised. Quote, Although Timothy's mother was Jewish, his father was a Gentile, and this may have been why he had not been circumcised. Paul took Timothy and had him circumcised to clarify both Timothy and Paul's affirmation of Judaism in the context of Christian outreach. Paul wanted to make it clear to all observers that the gospel of Jesus was good news to both Jew and Gentile, and so he honored Judaism by confirming Timothy in his hereditary faith. The first act of Timothy's qualification for leadership enacts the advice that Paul would later write to him in the epistle to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 7, that a leader must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. Close quote. Now you may ask, how would anyone really know if Timothy was circumcised or not? In our modern times, we are accustomed to the status of people's private parts generally being quite unknowable. But back then, in a Jewish community, it wasn't a social faux pas to ask, Hey, are you circumcised? It'd be like asking if someone is baptized, and you wouldn't want to lie to your answer to that question. Additionally, I don't know if you'd ever had the chance to see the Roman bathhouse or toilets, and if you haven't, you should look them up. Uh, look up the toilets of Ephesus online right now. Anyway, once you look at these Roman ancient plumbing fixtures, you'll see that they offer no privacy whatsoever. And since these missionaries were influential foreigners to the town, people would be paying extra close attention to them, 
even while bathing or emptying their bowels. They, these missionaries may have even shared the gospel while using some of the bath facilities since they were social and communal areas. Eventually, someone would certainly notice. And so, in a way, this circumcision had the opposite effect of what Peter did. Rather than alienating Gentiles in a Jewish community, Timothy's circumcision was accommodating to Jews in a Gentile community. At no point did they pressure the Gentiles into making the same decision that Timothy did. After Timothy's circumcision, he was baptized, and Paul laid his hands on his head and ordained him to the ministry. Now, with Timothy in tow, the group headed up north. They had wanted to go to Bithia, but the Spirit of the Lord urged them to head to Troas instead. Troas was a small coastal Roman town built just a few miles away from the ancient ruins of Troy in Homer's Iliad. Perhaps the reason for this change in itinerary was to pick up another travel companion, this one named Luke. Luke, as we talked about last episode, was the author of the Book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. But those wouldn't be written for many more years. When they found him in Troas, he was a physician, a brilliant and educated writer, and an Old Testament scholar. He had likely been a ritually relaxed Jew before making the transition into fervent Christian disciple. Like Timothy, he was a fantastic asset to the team, especially because of his writing abilities. You see, in ancient times, writing letters and books was an extraordinarily costly affair. One scholar estimates that the materials, labor, and shipping requirements for the epistle to the Romans cost approximately 20.68 denarii, which he calculates as roughly $2,275 in U.S. currency. Now, it may even be closer to $6,000, as some authors um, attest. And because of this cost, Paul wanted his epistles to be as clean and readable as possible, and so he entrusted professional scribes like Luke, Tertius, and later Timothy to pen his words to parchment. Having a scribe as a disciple and mission companion was even better since they would work for free, and they understood better what Paul was saying. That night in Troas, Paul received a vision. He saw across the Aegean Sea a man pleading with him, shouting, Come over to Macedonia! Help us! The next morning, Paul immediately mobilized his missionaries, and in a journey very similar to that of Odysseus, they arrived at the city of Philippi. Philippi was close to the ancient city Ismaris, which is where Odysseus had headed right after coming from Troy. But Paul and his crew didn't pillage the town. Instead, they found a congregation of women heading down to the river to pray. You know, studying about that good old way. Likely, there was a synagogue by the river. As was Paul's custom, he eagerly spoke to the Jews worshipping there. One of the women in the congregation, a purple cloth dealer named Lydia, had her heart opened to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. Lydia and her whole household were soon baptized, and they invited the missionaries to live at their home. Lydia was quite likely a very wealthy woman from her dyeing business. It took 120 pounds of predatory sea snails to make just one gram of pure purple dye. The dye powder costs $2,700 per gram, which is 15 times the value of gold. A merchant of that commodity would be living off extremely well. And so the missionaries established this comfortable base of operations to begin their work in Macedonia. One day, while they were going out to preach, a demon possessing a slave girl started, quote, annoying Paul. 
The demon mocked Paul, calling him a slave to God. Finally, Paul, who had had enough, declared, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the demon came out that very hour. Unfortunately, the girl's owners were making a lot of money off of that demon. And so the men in the city went to the Roman magistrates and complained about Paul and Silas. The magistrates had Paul and Silas stripped, beaten, and locked in a cell. Despite these distressed circumstances, Paul and Silas were still in high spirits. They spent the night praying and singing hymns to God. Then suddenly there was an earthquake. The earth shook violently, and the prison walls and doors cracked open, and the prison's chains were unfastened. The warden woke up, and when he saw the sorry state of his jail, he thought that surely all the prisoners had escaped already. He drew his sword, ready to commit seppuku, honor suicide. But Paul, who was in there just chilling with all the prisoners, shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. The warden's eyes widened in disbelief. He went inside the ruined building and struck up a conversation with this incredible man. Paul explained the origin of the miracle, and the warden soon became a believer. In fact, he and his entire family were baptized that very night. Afterwards, the warden invited Paul and Silas to their house, where they ate a late dinner and they had their wounds tended to. Early in the morning, the magistrates sent the police over to the warden's house to deliver a message that Saul and Silas were to be released. To the surprise of the police, Paul was in the warden's house, and he replied to them, saying, The magistrates have beaten us in public, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and now they're going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. At this, the police were sent back to deliver the message to their masters. When the magistrates heard this, they were metaphorically peeing themselves a little bit. They hadn't realized that both Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. Scourging a Roman citizen was against the law. Jailing a citizen without trial was also very much frowned upon. They would be royally screwed if Paul and Silas decided to press charges. Humbled, the magistrates came to Paul and Silas and apologized personally. Paul and Silas, being great men, forgave them. And now, having established a congregation in Philippi consisting of a purple dyer and her family, a slave girl, a jailer and his family, and a bunch of ex-convicts, and probably many others, Paul and the missionaries were ready to move westward to Thessalonica. In the Epistle to the Philippians, which would be written about ten years later in the early 60s, it's clear that the branch in Philippi becomes incredibly strong and righteous. Paul shares an extra special closeness to them. They were the first branch in Europe, and though many of them were poor themselves, they frequently donated supplies to help Paul and the other missionaries. So after Philippi, like I said, they arrive in Thessalonica, which is the capital of Macedonia and an important trading hub. Paul starts things off by debating the Pharisees in the synagogue for three weeks in a row. Though many influential women and devout Gentiles believe the arguments of Paul, the leading Jews were unconvinced. In fact, in their jealousy, they riled up a mob to snatch Paul. But when they couldn't find him, they decided to start arresting the other believers instead. After making bail, the believers decided that it was time for Paul to leave, and so they snuck him and Silas into a nearby city, Berea. In Berea, Paul and Silas lead scripture study groups in the synagogues and convince many Jews as well as some Greek women and men of high standing. But the Thessalonicans shortly arrive in Berea, hunting him down. 
the believers have to smuggle Paul all the way to Athens to get away from them. Timothy, Luke, and Silas had to be left behind. Paul, who kicked off this mission debating Christianity with Peter in Antioch, who was fresh from debating the Torah with the rabbis of Thessalonica, now has the chance to debate Stoicism with the Greek philosophers of Athens. This is a testament to the mind and speaking abilities of Paul, as well as the strong spirit and courage that he had. So how did he get wound up in a philosophy debate anyway? It all started when Paul visited the synagogues and the markets of Athens, proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. The philosophers who debated new ideas on Mars Hill, the Acropolis, every day, they were curious about what Paul was saying. Most thought his ideas were silly, or that he was just a peddler of another foreign god. But hey, it was something new, and new things had to be heard on top of Mars Hill. Other philosophers were a bit more wary of what Paul was preaching, and Paul, who was all too familiar with unjust persecution, recognized this fact. He no doubt saw a parallel from his own situation to that of Socrates, who was brought to Mars Hill to stand trial for introducing strange divinities several centuries earlier. In Athens at this time, there were two main schools of thought, the Epicureans, who taught that life exists for pleasure, and the Stoics, who believed in apatheia, i.e. not concerning yourself with that which you cannot control. You can learn more about these belief systems in our episode on Stoicism from June. Now, neither of these schools believed in an afterlife, and they certainly didn't believe in a resurrection. So Paul began his speech to them with a compliment. He said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Paul then cleverly pivots to his main point. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands. And so the Athenians, who had included the altar just to try and cover their bases in case they missed a god, they left Paul this perfect opening to explain about the god of gods. And so Paul goes on to continually find more common ground with these philosophers by quoting two Stoic poets, Cleanthus and Eratus. These two had both written, essentially, were the offspring of God. And so Paul quotes them when he says, For in God we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Paul further connects to the Stoics by explaining, quote, God made the world and everything in it. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Close quote. This appealed to the Stoics, who believed that all of nature was designed by a creator for the benefit of man. Paul's speech convinced the philosophers that they should not persecute him. It turns out, unlike Socrates, he wasn't teaching any strange or illegal gods. Rather, he was preaching about the unknown God and his half-man, half-divine son. This all gelled well, especially with the Stoics. Paul's contemporary Seneca, he revered Heracles, who was the virtuous son of a divine father. And Stoics at this time also revered Zeus. And so, according to them, Paul really didn't have too much radically different than what they believed. So, most of the philosophers responded to this sermon with a shrug or maybe a sneer. Although there were some who said, 
We want to hear you again on this subject. Acts 17 tells us that after these things, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And so Paul actually manages to convince some of the philosophers of Athens to join Christianity. Now, Paul didn't stay in Athens long. Instead, he headed over to Corinth, the provincial capital of Greece. Corinth was kind of like the Vegas of the ancient world. It was famous for its very active Aphrodite brothel and gambling. Yet Paul still managed to eke out a righteous living here for 18 months. The Lord told Paul he would be safe in Corinth, and so he decided to stay for this extended period of time. During the weeks, he would work with Aquila and Priscilla, who were converts from Italy. They too, like Paul, were leather workers and tent makers, and so they often worked together to help pay for food and other things Paul needed for his future mission. On the Sabbath, they would go to the synagogues and preach together. Eventually, Timothy and Silas make their way to Corinth, and they are reunited with Paul. Paul was still having hardly any success preaching to the Corinthian Jews, but with the three of them back together, they decided to give it one more, sh one more go together. Uh, unfortunately, it went very badly. The Jews reviled Paul, and Paul got so mad he shook the dust off of his clothes, declaring, I go to the Gentiles now. He stormed out of the synagogue and went into the house of Tedious Justice, a, a Gentile believer who lived next door to the synagogue. Now, very, very shortly, Paul realized that his proclamation was a bit too hasty. For in the coming days, Crispus, the rabbi of the synagogue, would decide to be baptized along with his whole house. Sosthenes, another rabbi, would also join the church here in Corinth, and he would later become Paul's co-author in his later epistles to the Corinthians. Paul's second mission wrapped up after the Corinthian Jews started to persecute him and Sosthenes. The Jews even bring Paul to court, where Paul meets the proconsul of the Greek province named Gallio. This guy is actually the Stoic philosopher Seneca's older brother. Wisely, Gallio decides not to involve himself in these affairs, but he also turns a blind eye to the persecutions. And so, looking to calm things down, Paul heads back to Jerusalem, where he visits the temple, then returns to Antioch, where he greets the saints. Finally, his second mission is completed. Next week, I'll discuss the third mission of Paul up till the end of his life. That concludes our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and share with a friend. For more information on this topic, check out the New Oxford Annotated Bible Commentary for Acts chapters 15 to 18 and the Carta Bible Atlas. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you.